tonight to the book of Galatians, chapter 1, as we continue our study through Paul's letter to the Galatians. If you need a Bible tonight, just, you know what to do, lift your hand and duck. I mean, these guys are gunslingers, they will. Again, the book of Galatians, it is the first epistle that Paul wrote of all the letters that we have of Paul in the New Testament. Galatians was the first to be written. And it was also written to the first set of churches that were started by Paul that had been corrupted by the enemies of Paul. So Galatians, the first epistle of Paul, sent to the first set of churches started by Paul that had been corrupted by the enemies of Paul. Paul had been committed or commissioned by God with the gospel of grace. Paul is known as the apostle of grace. He was sent to the Gentiles to testify of the grace that was purchased by Jesus Christ on the cross. Now you recall from our last study, the Jews that were in Jerusalem, they refused to accept Paul's message and to agree with or ratify his ministry. They they fought against it. They were prejudiced against the Gentiles. They could not accept that a Gentile could come to Jesus Christ without first, you know, being a proselyte or a convert to Judaism and going through the rites of circumcision and the law and, you know, all of the rest. And Paul's message, Paul's ministry to the Gentiles is that salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ alone, apart from the covenant of Judaism that was given to Abraham through circumcision, and apart from the Mosaic law and the Levitical codes that was you know, put upon the nation of Israel, God's chosen you know, in that way, that, that salvation through Christ is completely separate from that which was of the old covenant. And, and, and basically, Paul's message was that you are saved by grace through faith. By simply trusting that Jesus Christ and his work on the cross and paying the price for sins is enough to cover all that believe. His message was not that faith in Jesus is simply an acknowledgement of the historical Jesus. Oh yeah, I believe that there was a man from Galilee and you know he was a historical figure and he was a prophet and that yes he died on a cross I believe that that's not what Paul's message was but rather it was that salvation comes as a man or a woman takes ownership of what Jesus Christ did and appropriates it unto themselves and thereby trusting him for their salvation That my righteousness is not of anything that I do or have done or will do, but it is completely something that has been purchased and paid for by Jesus Christ. And that my righteousness stands or sits, literally, at the right hand of the Father in heaven. It's there. It's secure. It's paid in full. And that faith in Christ as my Savior, my Redeemer, that that saves me. That is what Paul's message was, apart from any law or any custom or any ritual. Now, the Judaizers, those that had corrupted Paul's message, following him from place to place, they taught that, yes, Jesus saves, but 
you must also be a partaker of the covenants of the Old Testament. Circumcision, keeping the law, following the temple rituals, and and all that was laid upon them, the burden of the law, you must also keep those things as well if you want to be saved. And so these Judaizers, they followed Paul from city to city, wherever he would share his gospel and plant a church, the Judaizers would come behind and they would say, yes, what Paul said, yeah, we understand Jesus, but you must also, and then they would lay upon them the burden of the law, you must be circumcised. And so the reason for Paul writing this letter to the Galatians was to remind them and to establish with authority that salvation and redemption is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. There is no and. Jesus and circumcision. Jesus and the law. Jesus and faithful membership at your synagogue or your church. There is no and. Paul wrote Galatians to establish that. And second of all, he wrote Galatians to establish, and this is the more challenging part, That if there is an and or an asterisk after the word faith in the heart of a person who acknowledges Christ, if there is an and, then it is a false gospel that you are believing. It is not the gospel of Jesus Christ, and therefore it is unable to save you from your sins. And third of all, that is important enough of a truth that Paul wrote Galatians, and we have it in the Bible before us, that there's a whole book of the Bible that is solely set to establish this fact in our lives, that there can be no and. That if there's an and, then the gospel has been perverted, the gospel has been corrupted. And so again, the outline of Galatians, chapters 1 and 2, Paul's revelation of grace. The grace of God revealed to him personally by Jesus Christ. The testimony of that in chapters 1 and 2. Chapters 3 and 4. Paul's doctrine of grace as he establishes that this is not something new. This isn't something that I dreamed up while I was, you know, in the woods hallucinating or something. But that this is something that is doctrinal. It's something that was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. This was God's plan from the beginning. Salvation by grace through faith. Paul's doctrine of grace, chapters 3 and 4. And then chapters 5 and 6, Paul's application of grace, or how then do we operate, or what does it look like in the life of an average believer or Christian, chapters 5 and 6. Now in verses 1 through 5 that we covered last week, Paul gives them a very brief introduction. Wherein, first of all, he establishes his authority as one that was sent by God to establish the work that was going on in those churches. He establishes his authority. Then he also reminds them of his ministry to them as the one who brought them to Jesus Christ. So he establishes, first of all, his authority that he was sent by God. And then he reminds them of his ministry that he was the one that led them to Christ. And then... Finally, he sets them up for his message, which he begins abruptly in verse 6. So, a quick intro. Paul just reminds them, he admonishes them, and then he sets them up. And as we pick up now in verse 6, Paul gets right to the point. And in these verses, and we will only look tonight, Lord willing, at verses 6 through 9, Paul states his case against them. 
And in this small passage of Scripture, these few verses here, Paul gives to us the whole theme of Galatians. Everything he will say after this revolves around this statement that he makes in these verses. This is his case. This is his problem. This is the the bug that Paul has, if you would, that, that is bothering him, that is compelling him to write this letter. He tells us here in these verses, and it's threefold. There are three things that Paul is going to say to them, his agenda, as he writes to them. And he begins here in verse 6. The first thing that he says to them is that there is only one gospel. And if you're taking notes, you can write that down. Paul's first point as he brings up his case against them, is that there is only one gospel. Look with me at verse 6. He says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which, he says, is not another. Now, the word gospel in the Christian context, it, it, it means good news. And for Christians, when we reference or talk about the gospel, what we are speaking of is the message of God's gift of salvation that is freely extended to any who will receive Jesus Christ and the gift of grace that was purchased on the cross. It's the good news that Jesus was God in the flesh and that he bore upon himself the burden of the law and paid the penalty with the currency of his blood for sin, and that you can now come into fellowship with God. You can have the gift of eternal life as you would just acknowledge and confess him as Lord and receive his gift of life in yourself. That's the gospel. And Paul says that there is only one gospel. There's only one way wherein you can get to heaven, and that is by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if you wanted to you know, come to my house. Let's suppose that I, you know, gave you an invitation and I was going to have you to my house for a meal. Or, or if you were going to go to some other uh, undisclosed place that you have never been before. And you don't know how to get there, but you really want to go. You really only have three options as far as, well, that's not true anymore. There's actually 50 options today. But let's, you know, let, let's suppose for practical purposes, you only have three options. Uh, Option number one is to rely upon the opinions of others. You can ask directions. You could say, well, do you know how to get to Nick's house? Or do you know how to get from here to there? You know, or, or whatever the case might be. And you are then at the mercy of the person who is telling you. How do you know if they really know where they're going or how to get there? And it's kind of a follow-at-your-own-risk type of situation when you ask someone else for directions, when you rely upon the opinions of others to get from point A to point B. Option number two, which is the male favorite, is we'll just go by the Spirit. The sun rises in the east. It sets in the west. He lives north. How many roads go north? You know, let's just go. We'll find it. We'll work our way there. You know, and, and, and you know, the, the, the practicality of the woman, you know, wisdom is always in the female uh, gender in the Bible. She says, can we just ask directions? No, 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 no. I know where I am. We'll be fine. You know, we're just going to go by the Spirit. We'll get there. It's okay, you know. So you could ask for directions or you could go by the Spirit. Or the third option, very practical, very wise, is to just use a map or today your smartphone. 
you know, or, you know, the GPS devices. Just basically follow the directions that have been prescribed because that is a foolproof way to get from point A to point B. Now bring it into the Christian context, the spiritual context. We want to go to heaven. We want eternal life. We want to be in the presence of God. We want to be following the true way that's going to lead us to life. Well, we have three options. We could first of all rely upon the opinions of others. We can watch what other people are doing and we can kind of try to figure out how to you know, work our way to heaven based on what we see or hear other people doing, relying on the opinions of others. But the problem is you're at the mercy of whether or not they are actually following the right way. Do they really know where they're going and where they are? Or you could foolishly say, as so many do, that, you know what, I'm just going to go by the Spirit. Hey, all roads lead to heaven. There's one God, he's got a lot of names, some call him Allah, some call him Vishnu, some call him, you know, Buddha or whatever, but it's the same God essentially, and as long as I'm true to myself and I follow the golden rule, hey, I'm just going to go by the Spirit and hope that I can get from here to heaven as I just kind of go along doing what I feel is the right thing to do. See, the problem is that all roads don't lead to heaven. There isn't many gods or one God that just has many names. Or the third option for a person who wants to get from here to heaven is to simply follow the map. Jesus himself, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I will show you the good way. You know, the old paths it speaks of in the, 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 the prophecy of Jeremiah. Jesus spoke of the narrow way that leads to life as opposed to the broad path that leads to destruction. And so you can either follow the opinions of others, you can go by the Spirit, or you can use the map. All roads do not lead to heaven. There can only be one God, one truth, and one way. Now, if it were true that all the different religions were ultimately serving the same God, then all of those religions would teach the same thing. Because God, by his very virtue, by his very nature, cannot contradict himself. Well, do all religions teach the same thing? Well, we know that's foolish. We know that the Islamic faith, that their hope, their heaven, is that, hey, I will uh, obtain, I will receive 70 virgins as my eternal reward. Well, the Bible... The God of the Bible teaches and he says that in heaven you are neither married nor given in marriage, that you are as the angels, and, and it's a whole different thing. Well, wait a minute, which one is it? But they're the same God, we just follow him in different ways. No, it doesn't work that way. See, it's inconsistent. If it was the same God, it would be the same message because God is consistent. God is one in and of himself. So therefore, one of those ways is true and one of those ways is false. Well, which one is it? See, there can only be one gospel. There's a map. It's the Bible. Peter declared as he was brought before the Jewish council there in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, and he boldly declared before them, neither is there salvation in any other. For there is one name, or there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There is only one way to heaven and it is jesus who said i am the way the truth and the life there is one gospel and that is paul's first point that he makes as he speaks to this galatian church he says it is not another gospel 
And then his second point, as Paul moves on in his indictment against them, is that a perverted gospel is a false gospel. Read on with me again in verse 7. He says, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. The definition of perversion is to change or modify the intended use of a thing or system, thereby corrupting it. To modify or change the intended use of a thing, thereby corrupting it. That is what it means to pervert. And Paul then applies this concept of perversion to what the Judaizers were doing with the gospel of grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were taking the message of Christ that he died for sins so that people could be forgiven and saved. They could go to heaven. And then they were adding to it that you must also be circumcised and that you must also keep the laws and the customs of the Jews and that those things were required if you want salvation. And essentially, by adding those things to the message of grace, they were declaring to the Galatian churches... That the blood of Jesus Christ itself is not enough to save you. It's not quite enough for the blood. When Jesus said, it is finished, what he really meant was, it is almost finished. That I have provided the platform or the canvas, but now it's up to you to paint the picture. That it's almost finished. Now once you add to the gospel of Jesus Christ, salvation by grace through faith, or take away from the message of salvation by grace through faith, you corrupt or you pervert. When you say Jesus and, Jesus and the law, Jesus and rituals, Jesus and certain traditions, Jesus and faithful church membership, Jesus and our 10% tithe, Jesus and proper dress code, and you put an and at the end of Jesus, you are corrupting and perverting the gospel of Christ. Or if you take away from the gospel of Christ, if, if you say, okay, yes, I believe in Jesus, but I don't really have faith in him. I, I acknowledge him personally. I acknowledge him historically, but I don't trust him with my life or follow him or obey him in the things that he says that I don't believe those things are essential. I just believe that I make a profession. I come forward once saved, always saved. I don't need to repent. There's nothing that takes place in my life beyond that. It's just, I raised my hand. I came forward. I purchased a ticket. I'm in. You've taken away from the gospel of Christ. There's no walk. You know, after you make that profession, there's no follow through as you allow Christ to move in and take residence within your life and to begin to cultivate and bear the fruit of the spirit within you. You've taken away from the gospel. You have made it cheap. You have made it something that it is not uh, an outward profession without any inward reality. And that is also a perversion of the gospel. It is a false gospel. And what Paul is saying to this church is that once you pervert the gospel of Christ, it is no longer the gospel of Christ. And the problem with that is Paul's third point that he gives to us in verses 8 and 9. And this is it. Listen very carefully, church. Is that a false gospel cannot save you. So Paul says there is one gospel that to add to or take away from that gospel is to create a false gospel, and that number three, a false gospel cannot save you. You cannot be saved. Well, let's read verses 8 and 9. He says, but though we, or 
an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed, Paul says. As we have said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. A very powerful word. It means anathema. It means cut off. It means separated from Christ. It means be destined to eternal damnation. It means you are not included in the salvation that has been purchased by Christ. Accursed means cut off. Off. And Paul says, if anyone preach or believe a gospel other than the true gospel of grace through faith in Jesus Christ, he says, let him be accursed. You cannot be saved if you are following a perverted or twisted form of the gospel of Christ. If you are following or preaching a gospel that adds or subtracts to that which is grace through faith alone, Paul is making the case that it is a false gospel and therefore it cannot save you. It's it's grace, but it's also faithful membership in the Mormon church that saves a man or a woman. The Mormon church teaches that a couple of centuries ago there was a man named Joseph Smith. And Joseph Smith was there in the hills of Palmyra, New York, and as he was out there praying and seeking God, the angel Moroni, and he was a moron, came to Joseph Smith. I'm not afraid, you know. He came to Joseph Smith, and he gave to him a set of mystical glasses that were what Joseph Smith called the Urim and the Thummim from the Old Testament times. And that that Urim, that Thummim, those glasses allowed Joseph Smith to receive the interpretation of a set of mystical plates that he had found there in the woods. And that the interpretation of those plates became what is today known as the Book of Mormon or the revelation that was given from Moroni to Joseph Smith. Now, I used to have a copy of the Book of Mormon and I had it for very one perfect purpose. But my wife... She likes to get rid of things like that. She doesn't like to have them around. And I I, I was happy to have it, not because of what it said or the content that was in it, but very simply because of what was on the cover. Because if you've ever seen the Book of Mormon, it very simply says in bold gold letters, the Book of Mormon, and then underneath the subtitle is Another Gospel of Jesus Christ. And I thought, wow, how did Paul know 2,000 years ago when he wrote the book of Galatians that an angel would give another form of the gospel to someone and that it would blow up into this worldwide religion you know, with, with so many followers and so many twisted doctrines and theologies. I mean, the Mormon church and, and all of its corruption you know, that you have to wear holy underwear you know, and, and this kind of a thing that you are bound to participate in the temple rituals and all that they, they teach. They changed the person of Christ and no longer is he God incarnate, the express image of the Father, the manifest image of his person, but now Jesus is nothing more than the brother of Satan. That there was a divine election in heaven wherein Satan and Jesus were both there and one would be chosen to redeem mankind and Jesus was chosen over Satan and so Satan rebelled. And that that's where Jesus and Satan kind of got their start on that day when the Father chose Jesus over Satan in in this twisted theology. But they go on from there and they declare that Jesus Christ, not 
God Almighty, but that he is none other than Michael the archangel. Not divine at all, but simply a created being. And later on in their doctrines, he is called Adam, that he was the first Adam, that Jesus was nothing more than a reincarnation of Adam that was put in the Garden of Eden by God in the beginning. They take the person of Christ and they corrupt who he is. They change the gospel, they twist it around, and then they put a thing on it that says another gospel of Jesus Christ, and then they require that if you want to be saved, then you must accept Jesus and faithful membership in the Mormon church. It's a false gospel. It cannot save. It changes the message. It changes the grace. It corrupts the perfection of what God had accomplished by sending himself, his son, into the world. Now, that's the extreme example. But it's not what Paul is dealing with with the Galatians. See, it wasn't nice-looking, clean-cut young men with white shirts and ties and elder badges riding bicycles to the houses of these Galatians that were giving to them these corrupted doctrines. It wasn't that extreme. It wasn't that radical. But what Paul is dealing with here and what hits closer to home with us is this message of grace and law. Grace and law. Hey, they would say the Judaizers, it's just a few rituals to make sure. Yes, it's Jesus. But, you, you know, it's just a few things to make sure. God established this covenant with Abraham. He said, circumcision is the sign of my people. If you want to be God's people, you've got to be circumcised. Hey, it's just a small thing. It's not that big of a deal. Well, Paul will say to the Galatians a bit later that if you be circumcised in that way with that belief, he says, Christ will profit you nothing. It's just a couple of laws. It's just a covenant card that you won't watch certain types of movies or wear certain types of clothes or go swimming in certain places. It's just a little covenant card. It's just the promise keepers. It's really no big deal. You just sign a couple of things. It's just a couple of rituals. Jesus and just in case because, hey, you never know. You know, it's just and, and you know, you kind of say, well, you know, what's wrong with that? I understand the Mormon thing, I, even with Jehovah's Witnesses or the other cults, I understand. But what's wrong with introducing a little bit of legalism into Christianity, Paul? Why are you being so passionate about a couple of rules, a couple of laws, a couple of traditions and rituals that have their precedent set in Scripture? What's the big deal? You see, the laws, the rites, the things that made up the substance of the Old Covenant, they were intended to do two things. First of all, they were intended to frustrate the sinner into realizing that they continually fell short of God's standard. But at the same time, it would not allow them to bend from it. So the law, and this is clear throughout the Bible, that the law was intended to bring the sinner to a point of frustration. I can't keep it. No matter how hard I try, no matter how much I promise, no matter how many times I put the little index card on my refrigerator that I will not set the unclean thing before my eyes or you know, whatever it is that I promise God I'm not going to do, I just cannot keep the law. It is not within me. I'm so corrupt. I'm so twisted. And yet the law is so strong that it will not release you from its grip. I can't keep it. But that doesn't mean that God's going to just let me go or 
grade me on a curve. I'm required to keep it. And so it brings a sinner to a point of frustration. That was what the law was intended to do. And second of all, the law was intended to foreshadow or prepare God's people for the coming of Christ into the world to both fulfill the law perfectly, to do what no one else could, but then also to free them from the burden of the law. So the law was intended to frustrate the sinner, first of all, but then also to point them to Christ who would free them from its chains, from the bondage that came from trying to keep themselves under the law. So the problem with the law, or the problem with mixing grace with the law, or Jesus and traditions, rituals, and laws, and and making that what salvation is, the problem with that, is that by believing that you must keep laws and rituals in order to save you, just in case Jesus isn't enough, or just to prove to God how serious I am, is that by professing that they believed that works saved them. Are you with me? By professing the law works. They were also professing that Jesus isn't enough. To believe that I must work my way into God's salvation or into God's favor is to also believe that Jesus isn't enough. And if I do not believe that Jesus is enough, then guess what? I fall short of saving faith. Because no longer is the emphasis on what Jesus did as my Savior, but now the emphasis is on what I must do in order to save myself. And that is an altogether different gospel than that which we have received. And that is the indictment that Paul is making. Your holiness determines your standing before God. The state of your potential blessing is based upon your performance and how you are doing before God. How are you keeping up with your ritual? How are you keeping up with your church attendance? How are you keeping up with your Bible study? How are you keeping up with that list of people that you're supposed to pray for? How are you keeping up with that promise you made to that brother or that sister that, yeah, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to remember. That God's blessing in my life and my standing before him is based upon my adherence to keep that which I feel God desires me to do. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It disqualifies us from his grace. To say, just in case, I'm going to keep these rules, I'm going to keep these rituals, I'm going to do these things just in case. I'm going to go to Calvary Chapel, the Hudson Valley. Man, I love the Bible studies. I love hearing the word taught and and singing those songs. But I'm also going to go to Mass. Because it's just in me. You know, I can't, I, I, you know, I, just in case. Because that's what we were taught. It's required. It's something, it's a non-negotiable. Sundays, holy days of obligation, you know, we have to be there. And so, yes, I'll go to Calvary Chapel, I'll enjoy the Bible studies, I love the message, but I'm going to go to Mass just in case. I I trust in grace through faith. I believe that Jesus died for my sins, but I'm going to be sure to be faithful, to serve. I'm going to strive to do what I know I'm supposed to do. I'm going to work my way into the favor of God. Just in case, on the last day, grace through faith just isn't enough to hold me up for some reason. I'm going to read the Bible every day. 
I'm never going to miss a day. 15 minutes of Bible reading, 15 minutes of prayer time in the morning and in the evening. I'm going to read my devotionals, my daily bread, the whole thing. And yeah, I'm backlogged a little bit, but I'm going to catch up, you know, because I'm just, I know I have to do that. I know I have to be reading my Bible just in case. You know, I was talking to my kids. We were away camping this past weekend. And we, we had some downtime on one of the mornings. And I said, they, we were all just sitting there. And, you know, that's what you do when you camp. You eat and sit. So I grabbed a Bible and I said, hey, let's do a psalm. And we began going through Psalm 91. I, I read that psalm to you a couple of Sunday mornings ago. And, I, I, you know, God is my refuge, you know, and underneath his wings. You know, that, that whole, that beautiful song, a psalm about God. And I began to read to them this psalm. And we began to discuss it. And we came to that section of that psalm where it talks about how his truth, let me read it just in case I mess it up, that his truth shall be thy shield. It says that his truth shall be thy shield. And and, and so, you know, I said to them, hey, what is the truth? Where do we find the truth? And little Sarah, she goes, the Bible. And I said, yes, Sarah, you're right. That is where we find the truth of God. And then I asked them a very deep and profound question. I said, how is the Bible a shield? How is the Bible a shield for us? Is it something that we hold up to stop someone from hitting us with a sword or shooting us with a gun? No, Dad, you know. And I said, then how? How is the Bible? And Sarah, she, she like, her face lit up like she had the answer. She was going to shine in that Sunday school setting. She said, when we read it every day? And to her, it was the foolproof answer. You know, how could I say no? That's not the right answer. But I did. I said, Sarah, no. I said, it's not when you read it every day. That's a good answer, sir. I'm glad you said that. I said, but here's the thing with the Bible. The Bible, what it does is that it connects the visible with the invisible. And I didn't say that to her because she doesn't know what those words mean. What I said to her was, it connects the things that we can see with the things that we cannot see. We can't see God. We can't see the Holy Spirit. We can't see wisdom. We can't see heaven yet. You know, there's all these things that we can't see. We can't see concepts, you know, and and different things that we try to apply to our lives. They're invisible. But the Bible, we can see. We can take and we can read the words that are there in the Bible. And then even in our mind, we can begin to formulate pictures of the things that we're, we're, we're learning there. You take the Old Testament stories and understand what's happening in them. You hear the words of Christ. And what's happening is that there's a transition, is that there's something that's going from the physical, physical, visible, understandable into the invisible, intangible, internal. And there's a transition that's taking place right there. And the Bible connects those two things, the visible with the invisible. And so I shared with them that when you read the Bible, what's happening is that you're laying a foundation in your life to draw from so that you can use it as the situations and whatnot come up in your life wherein you need them. And therefore, his truth becomes your shield. Because when Satan whispers in your ear as he so subtly and so powerfully does that you are not loved by God, if you were then this wouldn't be happening to you. 
Well, the truth of God is that I'm saved by grace through faith, that I'm accepted in the beloved, that no weapon that is formed against me will prosper, that I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope, that I will restore the years that the locust has eaten. And all of a sudden, the truth of God becomes a shield against the sword of the enemy. But that happens as the visible is transitioned into the invisible, and that comes from the Bible. And I said, that is why the Bible is so important. And then I said this to Sarah, and I watched her get set free as a six-year-old. I said, Sarah, there's going to be days in your life, sometimes two or three, maybe a week at a time, when you don't read the Bible. Because that's just the way life is. You can't, it, it just, you, you can't sometimes. It's just not possible. And if you live your life thinking, I have to read, if I don't read, then I'm not going to be blessed or God's not going to be with me. I have to go to church because that's my token into a blessed week. And if I don't get there, then I just know this week is going to be terrible. You know, this kind of thing. No, no, no. You're missing the point. It isn't a, I got to read or I got to go. It's a, I get to read and I get to go. Because what's happening is that God is laying a foundation of his truth within your life that is going to enlighten your path and and bless your life. Do you understand So when you say, I've got to read the Bible because I want God's favor and blessing in my life, what you are doing is you are saying, just in case. You are adding works to the finished work that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. And thereby you are erring. Not because the Bible's bad and all all the rest. That's foolish. You're erring because you're not trusting that what Jesus did was done for you and that it's enough. But that you must also do something else just in case. And you're missing the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Not because of sin, not because of rebellion, but because of failure to simply believe. All of a sudden, faith seems like, hey, it's, maybe, it's, maybe there is something to this faith thing that's more than just a profession or the raising of a hand. Your faith is unsure. Or if you say, and the other concept that people carry with them, the close cousin to just in case is just to prove I'm not doing this just in case. I'm doing this just to prove. I I know that the cross, the blood, the grace, I know that that saves. But I'm so bad. And my past, my history is so shady that just in case, you know, just to prove, when I get there, I want to make sure that if for some reason the father looks at the son and says, uh uh, you know, I I have a couple other things in my bag as well, you know. So I'm going to do these things just to prove that I'm serious about this profession that I'm making, this faith that I'm embracing. You're attempting to add to the finished work of Jesus Christ. What if you went to the Louvre, you know, that art museum in uh, Paris, you know, where all of the most magnificent works of art are kept and guarded there and, and, and stored, you know, for people to enjoy. And you go there and you see the Mona Lisa there enshrined, that famous painting, that perfect smile. You see Michelangelo's David there, you know, I don't know if that's where it really is, but I know it's a famous painting, you know, and it's there and you see it, you know. Or the Last Supper and you're looking at these works and, and you're there and you're looking at it. And all of a sudden, you say, you know what? And you grab your your oils, your pastels, and you go over, and you just, I'm just going to, I know this is a masterpiece, but it just would be so much better if, and you begin to just maybe put a couple of finishing touches. 
they would kill you, you know, because what you're doing is that you are corrupting a masterpiece. It's the finished work. It is done. It was done by the artiste himself. It is complete. And there you are saying, you know what? It's just not quite right. I'm going to add something to it. It's the same thing to take the perfect work when Jesus said it is finished. The masterpiece of man's salvation was complete. And for you and I to audaciously, boldly go forth and say, yes, I know what you did was for me, but I am going to do these things just to prove or just in case. You are corrupting, perverting the perfect work that was already finished, already accomplished on your behalf. Jesus said, I have finished the work that the Father gave me to do. He didn't say it is almost finished. The rest is up to you. That's what motivational speakers say. But it's not what Jesus said. He said, it is finished. And as Paul opens his case against these Galatian believers, he lays this charge upon them that he will now prove. He says, first of all, that there is no other gospel. There is only one. It is the gospel of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That a perverted gospel is a false gospel, the apostle tells them. And that finally, a false gospel doesn't save. As we close, I know for a fact That there are many people, many people, and maybe some here, that the Galatian hurdle, the thing that was, was an issue in the Galatian church, is an issue with many people in Christianity today. That you struggle with this. You say, you know what, it just can't be that simple. That just Jesus is enough to just believe that that it doesn't require any works on my part. That there's nothing I have to add to it or to prove. That that to just believe and to trust completely in Jesus, that that's enough. I I just can't do it. I just can't let go of some of these things. Some of the rituals, some of the rites, some of the pledges, some of the promises that I made in my past. I I just can't do it. I, I don't know what would happen to me. My life would just spin out of control. I was talking today, it's interesting, you know, how God aligns these conversations. You know, you go for weeks without getting into any real, you know, meaningful conversation in, in a regular day. And today I'm, I'm there at work, and uh, one of the guys that works for our company, he's an older guy, and he's an elder in his church down in the city somewhere. He, he's, uh, he's from Guyana, and he came up to me, and he said, you know, I'm, I know I'm going to do his voice because it's just kind of in my head right now, but he, he just said, can I ask your opinion on something? And I said, yeah, sure, you know, just shooting a breeze. And uh, he says, I, I just want to get your opinion. He goes, as a minister, you know. He says, I want to talk to you about John. Uh, John is my boss, who is also a believer. He's a Christian. And I said, okay, you know, and I don't know where he's going with this. You know, I, I mean, John's a little rough around the edges, you know, so it could be going anywhere, you know. But then he said, what's your opinion on his earring?" And I said, what? I said, I have a lot of opinions about John, but go on. He says, well, I just, I just want to know what your opinion is. He goes, it's just an opinion, but a matter of opinion. What's your opinion? And so I, I said, well, I, go, I never really thought about it before. I said, uh, it's an earring. And he goes, he said to me, well, how would you feel if your pastor came in to church, and he had an earring in his ear. (laughs) And I said, well, I said, sometimes my pastor comes to church and he wears a pink shirt. (laughs) 
And I said, I don't really like it when he wears a pink shirt. And I think if he had an earring, I would think much the same way as if he came in with a pink shirt. I just wouldn't like it. <laughs> you know, don't worry. He doesn't like the way I dress either. I can't tell you how many times Bobby says, get a haircut, you know, or something like that. So it, it, it goes both ways, you know. But I said, he said, would you have a problem with it? I said, I wouldn't have a problem with it spiritually. I might have a problem with it in, you know, what my likes and dislikes are and what I would do and wouldn't do. But spiritually, I have absolutely no problem with it whatsoever. And I said, do you mind if I ask you what scriptural basis would I have to have a problem with that? And he couldn't answer me. And, and you know, we kind of talked a little bit more, and it was very peaceable. He was not at, at all, you know, condescending or anything like this, but I was completely thrown off, like, wow, you know, he's really stumbled by the earring? I mean, goodness gracious, you know. And, and so about an hour later, we crossed paths again, and he says, you got another minute? And I said, yes, I do. I said, sure, you know, go on. And he, he says to me, what about the verse where it says, be not conformed to this world? That we're not to be like the world and, and that kind of a thing. And he said, don't you think that that is, is really, you know, conforming to this world and being worldly in, in that sense of doing that? And I said, okay, Terrence, listen. I said, in Exodus chapter 21, which is the, the chapter after the Ten Commandments were given, the Apostle Paul gives the, I'm, I'm sorry, not Paul, I'm in Paul, sorry, forgive me. Moses, God gives to Moses the law concerning the bond slave. And he tells the, the, you know, the, them there that if a, a Hebrew servant is a slave, after seven years, he has the right to go free. But if that servant doesn't want to go free, he likes his master's house, he likes the conditions of the employment, he wants to stay, then he has a right to be a servant by choice. And the sign of being a servant by choice is that the master would take and he would put an awl through the ear of that man and put an earring in that hole. And that that earring was a sign that that man was a servant by choice. I said, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul calls himself a bond servant of Jesus Christ over and over and over again. The doulos, the bond slave, it means the same exact thing. I said, if anything, the world is copying us by putting earrings in their ear. Because God thought of it first. <laughs> and he said, wow. He goes, I never looked at it that way. And then I went on with him and I said, okay, Terrence. I said, listen, if the sign of a man's spirituality or a man's sanctification or his separateness lies in earrings, tattoos, shoes, clothes, hairstyles, makeup, the outward appearance, I said, then where do you draw the line? At what point is something declared righteous or worldly you know, righteous or godly or unrighteous and worldly. I said, where do you draw that line? I said, when we are exhorted or admonished to be separate from the world, it isn't the outward things of our appearance and how we dress and what we wear if we have tattoos, earrings, or the kind of shoes that we wear. But it's the inward character of the heart. The fruit of the Holy Spirit being at work in us. Our attitudes, our work ethic, the way we let Christ form within us and the way that we love one another, the way that we serve one another, the, 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 the depths and the reality of who Christ is being lived out by us. That's what makes us different. Because otherwise, how do you draw the line? And you know, that kind of ended our discussion. But see, this whole concept of law versus grace, it, it, it really encapsulates that whole concept. Because, see, the law says reform and decorate the outward. 
Do it by your behavior. Do it by your promises. Do it by your effort. Do it by your appearance. Do it by your smile. Do it by your language. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. God bless you today. But then you get in the car and you're like, shut up, kids. I'm trying to drive, you know, and the whole whole thing. And it's like, whoa, where did that come from, Dad? Why can't we have the church voice? You know, hallelujah, praise the Lord, you know, and all the rest. Because that's completely outward. It's not real. It's put on. You could fake it. But see, that which Christ does by grace, by moving in, it's a transformation of the heart. It's the nature of Jesus that is birthed from within, and then it works its way out. It's a light that shines inside. Paul says we have this treasure in earthen vessels, this light. We are corrupted, perishing outwardly, but inwardly we are renewed day by day, he would say. And so for the person who says, I I just can't, I can't let go of these laws, these traditions, these rituals, because my life would just spin out of control. I mean, if you tell someone it's just by grace, then won't they go out and just live wildly and indulge themselves sinfully? Isn't that the result, what happens if you say, just grace, just Jesus, that's all you trust? No, no, listen. Once you experience the love of Christ that's produced by the grace of Christ, Once you appropriate the blood of Jesus upon your soul and you realize that your sins are completely forgiven and that you have been removed from the covenant of law and placed into the favor of God by grace, that you are no longer his enemy, but you are now his friend and you've experienced that love and you've experienced the liberty, the freedom of no longer being under the law, that I am set free from having to perform. I'm set free from having to be good enough, holy enough, righteous enough. I am free from it. Liberty has taken place. And you experience the peace that comes from being liberated from the law. And then you experience intimacy with God. You can come into his presence. You're his friend. You're welcomed in. You can talk to him and listen to him. You can have conversation and fellowship. You can receive from him. You can just sit in his presence and enjoy him. You can let tears begin to flow down your face. You can worship God freely and don't feel like you have to jump through hoops in order to come into his presence. And as you become one with him in fellowship, in intimacy, experiencing his love, being liberated from the law, you can't go back to the old life anymore. There is no old life. Paul says you're dead to it. You're reckoned dead to it. And automatically you become sanctified, what the Bible calls sanctified. You become like him. You're spending time with him and therefore you become like him. And at the point that you cease, listen, at the point that you cease, stop having a legal relationship with God and you start having a love relationship with God, then you just begin to draw near to him. You just begin to love him. And holiness becomes a byproduct of that relationship. Not something that I promise my way into or work my way into or read myself into. But spiritual growth just becomes an outflow of the relationship that I'm having with God. Holiness becomes a byproduct of what he's investing in me internally in my soul deep within The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, meekness, kindness, gentleness, self-control, those things begin to germinate inside and cultivate themselves outwardly as I spend time just sitting in His presence. Listen, the law can't produce that. An index card on your refrigerator, though it might be a glorious reminder, it cannot produce that in your life. It can't. You will fall short every time. 
But what the law cannot do in that it is weak through our flesh, God, in sending his own son for sin and condemning sin in the flesh, has brought us into the glorious power of God wherein we find the liberty to be free from sin and to have favor with God. I'd encourage you tonight as we close, if you know and you realize within your heart that you are still under the law, that you're still trying to please God by your efforts, still trying to work your way into his favor, that tonight you would simply lay that mentality at the foot of the cross. That simply you would just believe in Jesus. Just trust him completely that your righteousness is out of your hands. You cannot earn it. You cannot reach it. It's impossible. But your righteousness is seated at the right hand of the Father. That right now, God the Father is looking at your righteousness. He sees it. It's already in heaven. And when you get there, you don't have to have the ticket in your pocket. You don't have to have the list of just in cases because your righteousness is already there. It's already there. And you have the freedom to simply believe and allow the power of God to work within your life. John chapter 6, verse 37 Jesus said, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. I know there's some that think, yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I believe it theologically. I understand it doctrinally. But you don't know me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know the corruption that still lies within me. You don't know what it's like when you're walking down the street and all of a sudden images from my past just flash up in my mind and all of a sudden I'm right there again affectionately desiring things that, that today I, I would hate if I saw myself doing. And, and these things are in me. They're there. God sees them. You don't understand. Yeah, I believe what you're saying doctrinally. But I'm just not sure. Listen, Jesus says, if you come to me, you will in no wise be cast out. You will be accepted. And then in verse 37, or I'm sorry, verse 40, he says, and this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Believing and coming are one and the same. That to believe in Jesus Christ is your righteousness and to come to him are one and the same. And if you come to him, he will in no wise cast you out. And you have the privilege tonight of entering into the glorious liberty of the sons of God. And my prayer for you is that if you are struggling tonight under the weight of the law, that you would come to the foot of the cross and believe and be set free. May God give us wisdom. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you that it has power to save, power to set us free, power to enlighten truth, power to quicken us, power to teach us the way, power to defend us from the sword of the enemy. And we pray tonight as a congregation and individually, Lord, that you might show us yourself. You would magnify your grace in showing us the power of your salvation power of your blood to cleanse us from sin. Free us from that yoke of bondage. I pray that as we move forward in the study of Galatians, these truths would come clearer to us. 
that we would become like Paul, champions of grace. Sent ones, those that have been given the message to herald, the message of forgiveness. Please, Father, I just pray right now that as we sing this last song, that as we take this time, that you would allow your spirit to move in our hearts. You would move through this place. The Father, you would lift away the burdens. Where there's people that are holding on to ritual. People that can't let go of their effort. People here tonight that are tired because they've been striving to please you. I pray, Lord, that you would free them. Free them, Lord. Let your love permeate hearts and souls here tonight. Let your grace transform and change. Let your will be done, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together.